All right, if I could have you take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 14. Would you do that? John chapter 14. I want you to be able to um, follow along. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles, of course, you can look up on the screen. John chapter 14. Um, So we have been on a series uh, in the book of Matthew. And we've been on it all summer. We've been talking about discipleship. And uh, really the commitment to discipleship. We've been talking about the doubts of discipleship. We uh, Last week talked about unbelief. And a lot of those things that we've been looking at have been very intense, right? Uh, they've been very commitment focused. And it's been awesome to be able to delve into that with you guys. Uh, the speakers that we've had have been amazing. Um, but what I want to do today is I want to actually depart a little bit from this area of discipleship, because I think sometimes what happens is we can actually get caught up in the forest and not look at the big picture, right? To kind of delve into the forest and not look at the trees. So what I want to do is I want to give a message of great encouragement to you this morning. It's something that the Lord's laid on my heart, something that I believe, uh, especially since many of you are going to be starting school, you know, it's going to be important for you. And as we start actually, you know, getting into uh, the fall and all the things that, you know, uh, that we have maybe as families or as college students, uh, I want us to actually look at the big picture today, and I want us to look at the idea of heaven, okay? And that's what I want us to commit to. I want to, I want to encourage you to commit to having a heavenly perspective, because it's only when our hearts are on heaven that we will simplify our lives, meaning that we will focus on what's really important. And it's only when our hearts are on heaven that we will really have a successful life here on this earth, a life that really pleases God. So our denominations exhort us to this. The Baptists tell us to live out a blessed hope. Well, what is the blessed hope? Really, it's heaven, right? The Charismatics will tell us to grow toward our glorification. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means heaven. The reform tell us to be heavenly minded. And I don't have to really explain that too much, you know, but it's this idea of committing to a heavenly perspective. And so it's very important for us to actually occasionally go back to looking at the big picture of why. And in order to commit to a heavenly perspective, I really believe we need to see what the Bible says about heaven. So are you ready to take this journey with me? All right, let's uh, actually start in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for giving us the opportunity to look into your word. We ask that it would speak to us afresh and anew, that it would encourage us and exhort us, that it would give us inspiration, that it would give us a sense of life as we endeavor to live our lives for you. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. In John chapter 14, we'll begin reading in verse 1. Here Jesus is speaking, and this is what he says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. In verse 1, it says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, why would Jesus' disciples be troubled? 
Well, in this context, or in the context of this passage, and we've seen it in Matthew, okay? So I'm going to review this again. Jesus' disciples had been following him for about three years. And here they were convinced that he was Messiah. And they left everything to follow him. We've been talking about it, right, in the book of Matthew. Well, in the Gospel of John, we see the same thing. That they expected Jesus would set up a messianic kingdom. But Jesus shatters their expectations by telling them that his mission is to die. Is to suffer on a cross and die. And not only this, but Jesus tells them that he's going back to heaven and they cannot at this time come with him. Now, let me, let, let me let that sink in for a second. Imagine the feelings that are going on in the disciples as they have placed all their eggs in the Jesus basket, right? They have completely given their lives, lock, stock, and barrel, committed to Jesus, and he tells them that he's going to heaven and they can't come at this time to where he's going. Imagine the sense of abandonment. Imagine the frustration Imagine the discouragement, even depression. Imagine all of these anxieties. The disciples are troubled. And it's in this context that Jesus encourages them with the ultimate promise of the gospel. And here it is. If you're taking notes, write this down. That heaven is prepared for Jesus' disciples. That heaven awaits the disciples of Jesus Christ. So if you're born again, if you're regenerate, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. And as Jesus' disciples, you're promised eternal life forever and forever and forever in heaven. Can I get an amen? Amen. That's a beautiful, beautiful thought. And it's a tremendous encouragement to all of us, especially to me, because if there's one truth that we have in this world, it is the reality that we will experience trouble. As a matter of fact, some of you might be facing trouble at this very moment. And this morning, if you are facing trouble or you know trouble is on the horizon, this message is for you. Because in John chapter 14, and here's the big picture, Jesus promises complete encouragement by offering you eternal life in heaven. Now, I want to be very encouraging to you this morning, so I only actually have two points, okay? Two points, and then you can go to lunch. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay. The first point is heaven is our restful home. If you're taking notes, write that down. Heaven is our restful home. Now, you might ask, why is it so restful? Now, I have to do a little bit of systematic theology, okay? So follow along with me because I think it's very important that we understand this. The sin that entered our world, the Bible says, will one day be eradicated, that God will completely destroy sin. The book of Revelation tells us that heaven is that place that is going to be without sin. Heaven is big. It's beautiful. It's a beneficial place. And God will show us everything as it was originally intended to be in heaven. And that is a place without sin. Did you know that sin is the catalyst that causes all of the problems that we see today? Originally, God created all things, the Bible says, good, right? But sin was the corrupting factor that destroyed the good. And God says that there will come a day when all sin will fully and finally 
be eradicated. And that place is in heaven. In heaven, we won't see sin anymore. That means that there won't be things that we are accustomed to, uh, that we are accustomed to here on this earth in heaven. There will be, and if you're taking notes, no more sorrow. That means that actually Kleenex will be out of business. I always carry Kleenex with me everywhere I go, all right, for various reasons, okay? I won't explain them, but I always carry Kleenex. And I always think when I get to heaven, Kleenex will not be there. And why is that? Well, because sorrow is a result of sin, right? Revelation 21 and verse 4 and I'm going to kind of dwell here for a second in Revelation. It says, And he, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more mourning or crying. That Jesus will wipe away tears forever. The word is for finality. That once he wipes away tears, he won't ever have to do it again. You've heard the saying, there's no crying in baseball, right? That's not true, of course. But it is true to say, There's no crying in heaven. There's no sorrow in heaven. Let that sink in. Does that encourage you? Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. Well, you know, in infomercials, right, when they kind of talk about different things and really get you pumped up on it, what do they say? Wait, there's more, right? So, wait, there's more, okay? Not only is there no more sorrow, but the Bible says there's no more suffering. As a matter of fact, another thing that I carry with me all the time is Tylenol, okay, for whatever reason. The older I get, the more I need acetaminophen. I don't know what it is, okay? But I carry this all the time. You know, Tylenol will be out of business in heaven because suffering is a result of sin. Revelation 21 and verse 4, there will be no more pain. That we won't ever again experience pain physically. There's no need for drugs. And I'm even talking about the legitimate kind of drugs. There won't be any need for that because we won't experience pain. We won't deal with emotional pain either, the Bible says. So that when Jesus ushers us into heaven, there's no more pain. Imagine no more wars. Atrocities will be abolished. Slavery will be no more. Crime will be discontinued. Oppression won't happen anymore. Why? Because in verse 8 it says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving... The vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars will all have their place in the second death. That God will eradicate sin and those who cling to it. Verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor anyone who does anything that is detestable or deceitful. The Bible says that there's no suffering in heaven. Does that encourage you? Can I get an amen? But wait, there's more. Not only no sorrow, no suffering, but there's no more sickness. Again, no Kleenex, no Tylenol is needed because sickness is a result of sin. We won't deal with cancer anymore. Can you imagine? We won't have to deal with all these illnesses. Now, as I say this, I know it's hard to imagine. And as you listen to it, you're probably thinking, you know, Dave is preaching a fantasy. I can't imagine having a world where there's no cancer where there's no problems like that, right? And we do this because we've never had it this way. There's never been a time where these things have not existed. But the Bible tells us that there will come a time when there is no more sickness. But wait, there's more. Not only that, but there's no more separation. Revelation 21 and verse 4 says, there will be no more death. 
this is the most feared reality for every human being. You know, death is separation. Separation of the body from the soul we call physical death. Separation of man from God we call spiritual death. In Romans 5.12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all have sinned. Right? So here we see death through sin. And death is a result of sin. By the way, do you know why God hates sin so much? It's because sin is the catalyst for all of this. It is the cancer that affects everything. So that in heaven, there's no separation. And there's no separation from God. Revelation 21 and verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from God's throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Does that encourage you? Can I get an amen? But wait, there's more. Not only is there no sorrow or suffering or sickness or separation, there's no more Satan. Wow. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, and they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. There will be no more enemy that continues to accuse us and entangle us and deceive us and devour us and destroy us. You see, heaven is a place of complete rest, is a place without sin. And heaven can be that restful home for us. John chapter 14, let's get back to our text. Now that I've set the stage, I want to get into our text. Okay, verse 1, it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. I want to stop right there. First, Jesus offers an authoritative statement that is steeped in full assurance. That heaven is my Father's home, it's God's home. That heaven is Jesus' home. That's where he's going back to. And because you are in Jesus, because you are with Jesus, it's your home too. Now that is powerful when you think about it. Imagine a home where it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and yourself. And I want you to notice the word room. It means dwelling place. When I was a kid, my Sunday school teachers, and I was a kid a long time ago. I'm a very old person, okay? When I was a kid, my Sunday school teachers used to use the KJV Bible, the King James Version of the Bible, okay? You guys heard of the King James Version? Raise your hand. Okay. All right, some of you have. Okay. Well, they used to use that, uh, and John chapter 14, actually the verse read, in my father's house are many mansions. Wow. You know? And as a kid, I was so excited about that. Because as a kid, I always pictured having my own mansion. I always pictured, and it's very popular, the Crazy Rich Asians movie. You know that movie, right? Where you have uh, Nick Young's family home, and it's this huge mansion with 40 bedrooms and 20 bathrooms. It's a huge estate. Well, that's the kind of stuff I dreamed of when I was a kid, right? I was a weird kid. And, you know, I would think to myself, I'm going to have my own mansion, right? And my mom's going to have a mansion uh, next to me. And my father is going to have a mansion next to me. And my aunts and uncles will have their own mansions if they're Christians. My brother will work in my mansion, right? Because he's my little brother and I'm going to make him do stuff. But I'm going to have my own mansion, okay? And I was always excited about that until I became a teenager. And when I became a teenager, my Sunday school teachers switched from the King James Version to the NIV, the New International, right? And that word, they changed it from mansion to what it was originally intended 
room. And I was so angry at the NIV version of the Bible, okay? Because that really made me upset, right? Room, that's what I have as a teenager. My dad always barges into my room. I don't want just a room. I want a mansion. But now as an adult, I can appreciate this picture. I understand why Jesus presented heaven as our room. It's a picture of intimacy. Here the reader pictures a family home where your room will be close to God's. You know, Alexis, my daughter's room is 10 steps away from me. At any time, she can run into my room and she can share with me whatever she's going through or she can have whatever she needs taken care of. And it's a home. It's this room where intimacy happens, where security happens, where rest happens. You know, this summer, uh, we vacation in Hawaii, okay? And uh, we try to go there every year. And it's my favorite place in the whole world. If you were to offer me a ticket to Paris or you were to offer me a ticket to Honolulu, my wife and I, we always pick Hawaii or Oahu or Honolulu every time. Why? Because I really believe or I feel that it's like heaven. It's the earth's best attempt at heaven. And I love it. I'm very connected to Hawaii, okay? And we always stay, if we go to Oahu, at the Ko'olina Beach Club. How many of you have been there? Would you raise your hand? Okay, you got to go. It's like the greatest place, okay? The Ko'olina Beach Club in Ko'olina, it's where the Olani, right? Disney, you know, uh, built the Olani and everything. And uh, we've been going there for years. I remember when my daughter first, we first went to uh, Ko'olina Beach Club. She was about six years of age, okay? And I remember when we got there, we were just amazed, okay? And by the way, when I go to any hotel, I usually leave my things in my suitcase. Are you like me? Because you figure you're only going to be there a short time. Why would you take your stuff out? So I, I leave a lot of my stuff in there. But when we got there, I remember it was like heaven on earth. I mean, they have five man-made lagoons uh, in Koalina. And so what we did was we got there, and the first day, all we did was we swam all day. We took advantage of their pools, and they had water slides, and they have all kinds of amazing things. And we played water games, and as a family, we just had an amazing time. And so the first day at night, I'm tucking my daughter in, and I looked at her, and she's six years old, by the way, and I looked at her, and I said, Alexis, wasn't this amazing? I love to use the word amazing. Wasn't this amazing, right? She looked at me, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, Daddy, I miss home. I want to go home. And I thought, you're such a crazy kid. What's wrong with you, right? Because I'm thinking in my head, we're in Hawaii. But then I thought, you know what? This is the first day, right? Separation anxiety and all that. And so I will make the second day so much better. So the second day, we went to the beach, and we went to the lagoons. And all we did was hang out at the lagoons. We caught tilapia. We went snorkeling. We did all kinds of things. I actually swam with a honu. Do you guys know what a honu is? A honu is Hawaiian for sea turtle. I was swimming out in the farthest uh, part of the lagoon, and all of a sudden this head popped up, okay, and water spurted out of this honu's nose. And for a, a second, I thought it was an old Asian man, okay? And I looked, because old Asian men, when we grow older, we kind of look like cute turtles. So I looked, and I said, oh my gosh, those aren't liver spots, right? That's a honu. And I began to swim with the honu, right? Touch. We're not supposed to touch. I, I don't even know if I should record this, right? I touched the honu. Oh, I was so excited, okay, as I swam with this sea creature. And so when we got to bed that night, and we had a beautiful, beautiful uh, one-bedroom, I remember tucking my six-year-old in, and I said, Alexis, 
wasn't this the most incredible day ever? And I remember she looked at me. You know what she said? She said, Daddy, I miss home. And I said, you're so stupid, right? I didn't say that. I didn't say, what kind of dad do you think? I wouldn't say that, but I was thinking that. You're so stupid, you know? What's wrong with you? This must be your mother's genes, right? Not that my wife, not that my wife is stupid. She's so much smarter than me. But I'm just saying that I felt that way. Because I'm thinking to myself, why would you want to go home? Do you know every night of our vacation, Alexis commented about going home? And at first I thought, are you crazy? This is Hawaii. We ate shrimp truck at the North Shore, right? We ate poke at Alicia's. We experienced a luau, two of them. We fed ocean creatures. We went snorkeling at Hanauma Bay. We got matching tattoos. We ate shave ice every day, which is my favorite food in all the world, right? We did all the things that you could do that was fun, that was amazing, that was incredible. But you know the funny thing happened? towards the end of our vacation, I started to miss home too, you know? Don't get me wrong, I could have stayed a couple more weeks in Hawaii. But what I'm saying is, I started to realize, just like my six-year-old, that this is not home. Ko'olina Beach Club is big, it's beautiful, it's beneficial, but it's not home. Revelation 21 presents heaven as a big, beautiful, beneficial place. But John 14, our text, impacts us because it tells us that this is home. Amen? You see, you've heard this said, home is where you need to vacation after your vacation. Have you ever heard people say that? Well, it's so true, isn't it? Because it's only at home where you can relax. It's only in your own bed that you could really feel like you could get a great night's sleep, right? And Jesus tells his disciples that heaven is their home. And if heaven is home then this world is not our home. My best friend growing up in college was a, uh, a, a guy by the name of Ledford Hodges, okay? He was a hillbilly from Paducah, Kentucky, and we became really close friends. He was my best friend. And Ledford was into southern gospel music. How many of you like southern gospel music? Would you raise your hand? Okay, not many of you like southern gospel, but he loved southern gospel, okay? He was my roommate. And by the way, I remember every morning, he was a morning person, I'm a night person, And so every morning in the showers, he would sing Southern gospel music. And there was one song that was ingrained into my brain because he sang it so much. It's called This World Is Not My Home. Do you know that song? All right, I'm going to sing it to you. It goes, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh, Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then, Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Yeehaw! (laughs) Listen. That was ingrained into my mind. If this world is not our home, then heaven is our home. And if this world is not my home, then I'm just passing through. So you've got to ask yourself, what is this life if it's not home? Well, the Bible says it's a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. That this life is a vehicle to take us to our home. What if coming back from Hawaii to LAX airport, Here we're on a plane, we've ascended cruising altitude. 
What if this guy next to me began to take out his home furnishings after we've ascended up to a safe level, and he began putting curtains up? He began pulling out all of his family pictures, putting it all over the cabin. What would you think of this person, right? You would think he's crazy. What's wrong with him, right? In five hours, we'll be at LAX. This is not a place that we could call home. What if I asked him, hey, what are you doing? And he said, I've decided to make this place my home. Well, we would think, how can you make this place your home, right? When we're on a plane, all we're doing is thinking about getting to our destination. We may be reading a book or working on our laptop or watching a movie, but the whole time we're readying ourselves for the destination that we're going to. We tolerate the plane ride because it's only a vehicle. Let me share this with you. Just like that is true, this life is like a plane ride. It's short and it ends quickly. But just like I shared about the man who set up up his uh, home furnishings, there are so many people who view this world as if that's all there is, that this world is their home. And they live life as if this is all there is. And they are disillusioned at their deathbed when they find that this world and this life ends so quickly, right? They come to a point where they don't go gently into that dark night, where they're filled with anxiety, where they're filled with fear. Why? Because we were never meant to make this life our home. So even as Christians... Many times we get distracted in living life here on this earth where we think that this is our destination rather than a vehicle to take us to our destination. And we become so obsessed about the vehicle rather than the the destination and we end up squandering our lives. The Bible tells us to focus on our final destination. What makes heaven our ultimate home? Well, very quickly, it's because God is there. The core desire of every human heart is to be reunited with God that created them. Aurelius uh, Augustine, or St. Augustine, uh, as many of us know, says this, You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, heaven is the place where our restless hearts will find perfect rest in the presence of God. You see, heaven is our restful home. And then the second point, and this is where I close. Heaven is also, can we put that up? Heaven is also our reality helmet. Now, let me explain what that means. In Colossians chapter 3, can we put that up real quick? Colossians chapter 3, it says this. Look at it with me. Since then you have been raised with Christ, meaning that you've been born again, you've been saved, right? Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where? where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Where is this? Well, very quickly, it's heaven, right? Set your affections or set your hearts on heaven. And then the Bible says, set your minds on things above, on heaven, not on earthly things. This is a direct command for us to focus on heaven. The Greek word set means active, diligent, single-minded pursuit. So the writer here is saying, keep actively diligently, single-mindedly pursuing your hearts and minds on heaven, not on earthly things. And it's very difficult for us sometimes, isn't it? Because we can get so attracted, uh, distracted, excuse me, on the earthly things, the daily anxieties, 
the weekly uh, occurrences, uh, the frequent failures, the career choices that we make on a day-to-day basis, the children that we have. Many times the forest entangles us when we should be setting our affections on those things that are above. Now you might say, well, how can I do this? And this is where I close. I'm going to make it very practical, okay? I teach a series on the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. And so I always teach that every piece of armor is important. But my favorite piece of armor is actually the helmet of salvation, okay? The helmet of salvation. That's a helmet that we as Christians need to be wearing. But because you hear salvation in the title, we, have, uh, we make a, mistake, a mistaken note that heaven means, or the helmet means being born again, right? Because we see salvation in the title. But did you know that in the Bible, and I don't have time to explain this, okay? Trust me on this, that salvation is actually a continuum, And there are process points within that continuum. And it's talking about so much, okay? But what I want to get at is the helmet of salvation is talking about our future salvation. It's talking about salvation fully and finally being realized. It's this theological term being, uh, uh, theological term uh, of glorification. And so very quickly, I'll bring it back. It's this idea of heaven. The helmet of salvation, your destiny. Now, do you guys know what anticipation is, right? You guys know what that is, right? Anticipation is that that you are excited about. It hasn't happened yet, but you're excited about it. It's like my mom used to make the best chocolate chip cookies. She made Korean food, and that's all she could make, okay? And I love Korean food. But the one thing she learned how to make American was chocolate chip cookies. It was really weird, and she made the best ones. And I remember many times sitting in my room studying And all of a sudden, that smell would waft into my room and would enter into my nose, and I'd start salivating immediately. I started thinking, and that's all I could think about was eating those chocolate chip cookies, right? It's the anticipation. Well, that's what heaven is like. When we put on the helmet of heaven, it's that smell of heaven that wafts into our nose, that triggers this desire, oh, I'm going to eat that one day. I'm going to consume that one day. Someday, that's going to be mine. The helmet of salvation is that anticipation of heaven. And it's that same idea in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. Set your hearts on heaven. Set your minds on heaven. Focus your lives on heaven. Because putting on the helmet reminds you that you only have a short time on this earth to fight that spiritual warfare compared to all eternity. Amen? It reminds you of your future glory that you can live victoriously in light of your determined destiny, that you can rest your hearts and minds in your glorious future. So that when we have that kind of eternal perspective, it completely changes how we live our lives here on this earth. The helmet of heaven is a game changer for us, that when we put it on, we live confidently and aggressively. Now, I know that we have a three-on-three tournament, right, that's going to happen this afternoon. I played basketball in high school, okay? And my senior year, we had an amazing team. We actually had a winning team. In the history of the school, they've never had a team this good, okay? And I was on that team. And I remember, and it was a Christian school, it was a private school, that we had beat all the Christian schools in our area. And so we got a big head, okay? And I remember we were so good in beating all the other Christian schools that we were actually invited to a tournament of Christian schools in New York City, okay? And we were out in the Midwest, and we got excited about it. Wow, we're going to play in New York City. 
And so we went out there, and we beat all the Christian school teams in New York City. That's pretty awesome, huh? And I was on that team, right? And so we thought to ourselves, we're awesome. We're amazing. We had an undefeated record, pretty much, okay? Now, the last game that we were going to play in our hometown was to the public school champs. They were called the Ottawa Hills Bears, okay? And I remember that was the last game we were going to play. We had beaten all these Christian school teams. We had been undefeated, right? And so we thought, ah, piece of cake. We're going to play, you know, some local team, our city champs. So we took a bus, and we went to the Ottawa Hills gym. I remember this. And I remember when we got there, it was really weird. When we got there, it was a packed crowd of their people. We had our supporters, but it was pretty much a packed crowd. It was kind of like this. Everyone was quiet, okay? Wasn't really any, anybody yelling or screaming. It was just a, kind of a packed out but quiet audience, which was kind of eerie, I remember, right? Well, we were doing our warm-ups, and uh, just to let you know, our team, the Emmanuel Warriors, okay, we're all Caucasian, except for me. I'm the token Asian guy, right, on the team, okay? And our tallest guy was about 6'4". He was our center, okay? Now, this team came out. We'd never seen this team before. But the Ottawa Hills Bears came out, and they were all brothers, okay? All brothers, meaning they're all African-American, okay? And the shortest guy on their team, I think, was 6'4". He was their point guard. And they had a 6'9 guy, okay? Giant, okay? And we were doing our layups, and as I looked out at this group, they were, you know, they looked, they looked like the Los Angeles Lakers to us, right? They were, but all of a sudden, I started thinking, well, we could beat them, because we beat all the Christian schools in our area. We went to New York City, and we beat all them. We can beat this team. It doesn't matter. So I remember when the whistle blew, okay? We started. They would score a basket, then we would score a basket. They would score, then we would score, okay? And we actually hung with them for about 10 minutes, Okay? And then all of a sudden, they started blowing us out. So that at halftime, we were down by like 30 points, okay? And I remember this, okay? And we were completely demoralized. But if that wasn't enough, I remember at halftime, all of a sudden, their cheerleaders got up, okay? And remember, this room was relatively quiet. But when these cheerleaders got up, they started leading them in this cheer. And I'll never forget the cheer. They started clapping. They started going crazy. And they started leading them in this cheer. I don't know if you know this cheer. It started, isn't that the scoreboard? And then everybody would yell, yes, that is the scoreboard. Then they would uh, say, isn't that the right score? And everybody would yell, yes, that is the right score. And I mean, this place erupted. I mean, they went crazy. And then they would say, they would look at their team and they'd say, isn't that the winning team? And everybody would yell like maniacs, yes, that is the winning team. Then they looked over at us and they said, isn't that the losing team? And everybody would yell, yes, that is the losing team. So I want you to feel feel my misery, okay? So I'll be the cheerleader, and you guys respond. Isn't that the scoreboard? Isn't that the right score? Isn't that the winning team? Isn't that the losing team? Okay, you, are, you guys are a terrible audience, okay? Let's do this one more time, okay? Pretend it's a gym, okay? Pretend it's maniacs from Ottawa Hills. Isn't that the scoreboard? Isn't that the right score? Isn't that the winning team? Isn't that the losing team? And very good, by the way. Let's, let's give ourselves a hand, okay? And then they would yell, scoreboard, right score, winning team, losing team. Scoreboard, right score, winning team, losing team. 
winners, losers, winners, losers. You suck, you suck, losers go home. I remember that, right? And I just, I, I, I started pulling out Kleenex myself, okay? And I started crying because we were so emasculated, right? And I remember our coach took us into a locker room and he gave a tremendous oratory. I mean, he was an orator, and he talked about David and Goliath, you know. It was a Christian school, you know, David and Goliath, and we could beat these guys. So after halftime, we went out, and we lost by 60 points, okay? I'll never forget that. We just were totally crushed. But during that time, our second half, I remember as I was observing what was happening, this is what I saw. At second half, this Ottawa Hills Bears team came out they were high-fiving. They didn't even win the game yet. They were high-fiving each other. They were completely relaxed. I mean, they were joking around. On the court, they would, they would do uh, uh, different uh, slam jam you know, kind of drills. They would throw it up, and their 6'9 guy would dunk it on us, right? They would throw it up, and their point guard would dunk it on us, right? They would bring out their second team and their scrubs, and they would do Steph Curry's and just shoot it from half court, Okay. They, they were having the time of their lives, you know, and they were having such a great time. They played with such aggressiveness. They played with such confidence. They played with such ease. You know why? Because they knew they had already won. They knew they had already won. Second half, they knew it was just a matter of time. And it actually played into their demeanor and their attitude and how they played. My point is this. When we put on the helmet of heaven, it is a reminder to us that we have already won. Amen? The Bible tells us that we win. If you look at the end of the book, we see it's not Satan who wins. It's not this world system that wins. The Bible says that we win. And when we live our lives in expectation of heaven and the victory that God gives for us, my friend, we'll live confidently and aggressively, and we will live lives like the champions that God says that we are. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would protect us from the temptation to live for this world, that you would protect us from struggling in the forest of discouragement and depression, that we would look to that future hope that you give us, that we would look towards heaven and that we would one day achieve what you've offered us already. But God, as we wait for that time, that blessed hope, we pray that we would continue to live that discipleship lifestyle here on this earth, that we would keep our hearts and minds set on the future glory that you give us. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. At this time, we want to prepare ourselves for communion. The beauty of heaven, the beauty of the gospel that God's given us is that we can have that taste of heaven here on this earth. We can have it by focusing our lives on Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. And so as we prepare, for those of you that know the Lord, as we prepare to take of the cup and of the bread. Let's think on the sacrifice that made it all possible for us to enter into eternity with God himself.